again, my friends. This is Dick Foth with Stories from the Road. It's a, a wonderful opportunity that I have to be able to do this pretty much on a weekly basis. And those of you who know me or have listened to me know that, you know, he always talks about story. He talks about friendship. He talks about these kinds of things that, like anybody, can do or participate in. And I intend to keep doing that. What's fascinating for me is I keep finding illustrations that uh, substantiate the fact that story is at the heart of any kind of friendship. In just a couple of minutes, I want to introduce you to a Uh, two friends of mine that I've known for a long, long time. Uh, We were together this past uh, week in a place called Tekoa, Georgia. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But there's a fellow who wrote a book that uh, just fascinates me. I heard him speak some years ago and went out and bought one of his books. He's got several. His name's Arthur C. Brooks. Arthur C. Brooks is a Seattle native who now resides in Bethesda, Maryland. And in his background, he was a classical musician for more than a decade, even part of the Barcelona, Spain City Orchestra. Or if you are in that area, it's not Barcelona, it's Barcelona. And he then went on to be an economist, or maybe he was an economist the whole time he was a classical musician and played in that orchestra. But more recently, in 2019, he became part of the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Business School. In his book, Love Your Enemies, this is what he says about story. And he references the fact that here in the United States, maybe around the world, we we live currently in what he would call a culture of contempt. This is his language. When we encounter one another as individuals and tell our stories. We overwhelm contempt with something more powerful, love. And then he goes on to talk about a friend of his, Dr. Uri Hassan, who is a professor in the psychology department in the Neuroscience Institute at Princeton. One of the things that Arthur Brooks references is that when you try to win somebody's heart by reciting facts or evidence, for most of us, It doesn't work. If we are entrenched in our own belief systems and you give me other evidence, I tend to believe my own belief system more than I uh, believe your new facts. So his words again, if facts don't matter to most people, if their minds are made up in advance and they're immune to evidence, how can we ever come together on any issue? And he studied this subject for years. It seems that we will never see one another's arguments as worthy of consideration making my quest in this book, he says, to end the culture of contempt, a quixotic one at best. But he goes on to tell this story, or this, um, introduce us to this professor from Princeton, who does this. He, they scan people's brains while they're telling each other stories to see what happens with brainwaves. And Hassan studies say that when telling or listening to a story, Hassan says, our brains do something fascinating. We start to scan each other's brains before the story starts. Immediately as the story is starting, something amazing is happening, Hassan says. 
The listener engages with the story, and suddenly his or her brainwaves lock into a common pattern with the storytellers. His studies show that if the listener was drawn deeply into the story, his or her brain would actually get ahead of the narrative being shared, anticipating, actively predicting the speaker's upcoming utterances. It's that feeling you get that you just click with someone. You can finish their sentences, he says. And he goes on to say this fascinating thing. When people ask, are you on my wavelength, they usually mean it as a metaphor. Hassan's brain imaging shows that that isn't just a metaphor. It's a real physiological phenomenon. Well, last week I had a chance to fly out overnight from Denver to Atlanta. It was picked up by a wonderful young staff person at a college called Tacoa Falls College and driven two hours northeast to Tacoa, Georgia. Tacoa, Georgia, historically, is famous uh, for the fact that in 1942, 5,000 young recruits, army recruits in World War II, landed there, both physically and metaphorically, to be trained as airborne rangers, those folks who would find themselves on the beaches on D-Day or behind the beaches on D-Day, Battle of the Bulge, Operation Overlord, Anzio Beachhead, all those horrific places during World War II. What they found there was that in the, in the process of training that breaks us down and builds us up, a brotherhood develops in that case. These were all young men. And Spielberg and Hank's um, series on PBS called Band of Brothers came out of that place. It's fascinating then that just a few miles, handful of miles from the town of Tacoa is Tacoa Falls College. It has a, a waterfall that's fascinating. It's not nearly as voluminous as Niagara, but it is, I'm told, six feet higher. It's a beautiful location. But Tacoa Falls College is a faith-based college that is uh, home to a couple of thousand folks, both residential and online. And three of us were invited to come there for a day to meet with students. I say three because the other two fellows were the ones who sort of teed up my invitation to join them. I have known these two fellows for a long time. We are uh, dear friends. And in no small part, we are dear friends because we know each other's stories. And after a, a breakfast at a house where we were staying last Thursday morning, I said, why don't I just put this, this microphone, this recorder out here, and let's talk for just a few minutes about friendship. And so we did that. So I'd like you to meet him. Here they are. It's an early morning in November, and we are sitting at a dinner table, dining room table, in a little house in Tacoa, Georgia. I'm sitting here with my friends Bob Roden and John Ashcroft. Boys, how are you this morning? Well rested. <laughs> well, okay. I love, it. love being with the two of you. <laughs> well, and we're, we're here at a, at a college called Tacoa Falls College, and we get to sort of take the day and talk to the students and a couple of hundred high schoolers who are coming in to check it out, see if they have an interest in this. We were just reminiscing around the table over breakfast about what is it, what does friendship look like? Bob, you and I have been friends since you were a grad student at Wheaton College in 1966. So we're about 55, 56 years. John, you and I have been friends since we were eight-year-olds 
and and I moved into your neighborhood for a year, and for whatever reason it stuck. And here we are, 72 years down the. We are much older, <laughs> just a tad, just a tad <laughs> older. You know, but you know, friendship is something that sticks. Other stuff doesn't. There we go. <laughs> friendship sticks. Wow, it's good. Yeah. So here's the question. How do I be a friend and how do I have a friend? Here's their thought. I think one of the things about friendship is that when you have a friend, you, you may not see them or even talk with them sometimes, particularly living in different parts of the country for yeah. months, year. But when you connect again, you pick up right where you left off. Yeah. That's how you know you have a friend. That's, that's your 20th high school reunion. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're 16 again, which may or may not be good. I think there's something about friendship that involves, that's involved in trust. And uh, the most durable friendships, I think, come out of relationships where you've seen people at their best and at their worst. Mm -hmm. And you trust them anyhow. And they're friends anyhow. You know that even if you stumble, if you fall, uh, hey, this is what we've been through together before. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons, like college roommates, they've seen you at your worst. They've seen when all the things were going wrong when you, uh, when you didn't study for the exam and you were in big trouble academically, and, but they didn't abandon you then. So you have this expectation that of not being abandoned mm. and always being able to find this kind of uh, trusted help. Or comfort. I, com there's something about comfort, comfortability in friends. Mm -hmm. They don't put pressure on you. They take pressure off you. Sort of a non-pressurized environment. You know, that, that's an interesting uh, comment about college roommates. All of us spent time in Washington, D.C. Bob, you, you led a denominational gathering, if you will, of several hundred churches when from in the early 90s to on into the 2000s, and John, of course, you were there as a senator and attorney general. And what's interesting about Washington, D.C. for me, you know, I'm a kid from East Oakland, California, you know, I didn't grow up in that environment or anything. But watching people come into places of power or, or, or major responsibility, who when they looked for friends, because when you're in a place of power, you don't know why people want to be your friends, or you do know one way or the other. And they reached back for high school or college friendships to come in to play basketball, hang out for a weekend, or do whatever it was. Because those guys knew them before they sat in the catbird seat. They knew them before they were powerful. And they probably, they probably have some stuff on them, so you want to keep them close, you know. I well, I, you know, you know what Harry Truman said. No. Well, I think. Yeah. You mean the dog thing? Sure. He said, in Washington, if you want a friend, buy a dog. Yeah. And I think that's really um, advice that highlights the difference between people who want something from you, mm -hmm. which Washington is full of if you have power, and people who want to share something with you which is what friendships are. They're about shared experience in a context of trust and comfort and support. So you look back to things that have verifiable comfort and support and trust in them instead of the, the new guy 
who really is buddying up to you because his organization needs a favor from Congress. When you came to D.C. and you were a senator from Missouri and then became attorney general, I all of a sudden, because I was your friend, all of a sudden I had new friends, Bob. You know, you know how they... <laughs> <laughs> and, and I asked myself the question, when John is no longer in that position, I wonder how many of my new friends, mm. vicarious new friends, will go away. And as it turns out, at least half of them. That's a pretty good ratio. Dude. Well, you know, I thought I did pretty well, actually. <laughs> and friendships are not static. Yeah. Even false ones are not static. There mm -hmm. are people who might come to you for what you can do for them mm -hmm. in one respect, either from a position of power or something sure. else, who might decide, wow, there's something special here. Mm. I mean, in a spiritual sense, I keep thinking of Jesus and people came to him for what they could get from him in terms of a, sure. either a healing or a miracle or a free lunch or whatever it was. But I think there were people who over time said, wait a second, there's something really valuable here. And I think that's true in terms of a lot of friendships. People might start on one level and frankly, friendships, you think of the phrases that describe friendship, you know, and you know, one of them, is Washington when you get betrayed is with friends like that who needs enemies mm. yeah. uh, so friendships are dynamic yeah. and some of them are deepened by trust and comfort and some of them are broken as a result of betrayal I can't think of anything that approached betraying you're having betrayed me in 72 years of friendship so that's pretty dang so we're, so we're okay so far? So far, so good, Dick. So, <laughs> so far, so, so good. good. So, Bob, you and John and I have pretty different backgrounds at one level as relates to family. John had a father who's iconic in, in my eyes. He was, a, he was a giant in a lot of ways. Challenged his boys to do noble things and all of that. I had a father that I loved dearly as my hero, but... Along the way, there were some challenges with my mom, between him and my mom, and so dad um, left. And the, but you come from a pretty different space mm -hmm. where early on in Florida, where you were brought up, you didn't know your dad right. or, and so forth. And it was only in recent years, relatively speaking, that you sort of checked that out. But so here you are, a, a, a young man, being essentially raised by your grandma. Is that right? Yes, that right? yes. So in, in those years, when you were by yourself, so you were an only child, as it were, raised by a grandmother, did, did you have friends in that time frame? You know, it was interesting in that little town, there were older guys, older teenagers, yeah. who would take me under their wing at times, go do stuff with me, and uh, not a lot, but, yeah. but enough to, to kind of keep me connected. And... Uh, that was that was very very helpful, and then I had uncles, who uh, who sort of looked out for me, and uh, I think that's uh, th those are very helpful things. But but even more than that, we, I went to a little church, uh -huh. and that church was about thirty people. The pastor of that church, every pastor that came, I can remember going to the altar sometime just to, to say a prayer, and the pastor would come and put a hand on his shoulder, and say. Bobby, God, God's with you. He's with you. you. You never forget things like that. That they, even the pastor can become your friend. Isn't that interesting? It's a, I, and and uh, Sister Ford, 
with one of our pastors. <laughs> Sister Ford. Sister Ford. I could see her now with a hanky in her hand just preaching away. And, That's an image. But she had a tender, compassionate heart. And I can't, I can't even recount the number of times that she came and put a hand on my shoulder. So I'm, I'm praying for you. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I think the, the older adults who, when you are a kid, treat you like you're real. Yes. That's huge. Yeah. And that's at the that's at the heart of friendship, I, I think probably is when you treat the other guy or the person like they're real and you and you walk with them. One of my favorite definitions of friendship is a friend can sit is the person who can sit with you for two hours in silence and and not feel awkward. It, it's very hard for a talker like me to sit for two hours <laughs> in silence. I don't even know if I could pull that off. But that but that idea that you talked about, John, right at the front end here about theirness. You're present, you're there. That's uh, a that's a powerful, powerful deal. And I've heard you talk, both you and I've had this conversation about in friends you don't have to explain yourself to each other. Mm. You know, when you're with somebody that you don't know that well, you might have to kind of explain lots of things. But with friends, they know you, mm. and uh, and you you just you accept each other for what you are. I think that's that's really huge as well. Mm. That 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 you. Uh, that you don't have to explain yourself to your friend. Friends are the best. Whether new or old, or whether it's the fact that old friends find ourselves together after years in a place like Tacoa Falls College in Georgia. And we learn to become friends by hearing each other's stories. You've heard me say that probably dozens of times on this podcast, and you will continue to hear me say that because for one thing, it's such a fascinating thing to do is to read other people's lives by hearing their stories, but you just get surprised. I, I haven't mentioned this, but before we go, I just want to drop this in here. Sometimes I look at people and guess. Sometimes I think I know their stories. Or I've heard something about them, so I think I know. But that wasn't true when I went to Toccoa Falls College. They have a wonderful president there. His name's Dr. Bob Myers. He's been there a dozen years. And so I just asked my standard questions over lunch, I think. And I just said, uh, so Bob, uh, where were you brought up? He said, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Said, grow up there all your years and through high school? Said, yes. Said, then what? He said, well, I went to Penn State for a year, found out college wasn't for me. So I decided to just go get a job. I said, where did you get a job? Turns out that he got a job in a police department in a large metropolitan area in Maryland. I said, really? What did you do? He said, well, I was on patrol. I ran polygraph stuff. I got into IT. But my last few years, I was a homicide detective. And I hardly knew what to say next. I mean, <laughs> it's obvious, isn't it, that the natural trajectory to being a president of a college would be for a bunch of years to be a police officer, and more specifically for the last several years to be a homicide detective. It's a natural segue to being a college president. <laughs> I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about that and said, well, maybe it is a natural segue. I don't know. All I'm saying by that fun story is that we never know 
until we ask. We never know until we listen. But know this about your brain. When you start hearing somebody's story, your brain starts connecting with that person in a dimension it never does when it's just facts that are recited. But here's a fact. You can take this one to the bank. I love doing this. I love just getting on here and talking to you. And thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. And hopefully some of these thoughts and some of the comments of our wonderful guests will resonate and encourage us along the way in our own journey. God bless. That's it. I'm out for now. Catch you a bit later. This is Dick Foth saying goodbye. Goodbye.